everybody. Welcome to Bury Me in New Jersey. I'm your host, Sarah Wollerman, and I'm excited to have you join us for this week's show. Today, I had the privilege of talking to one of my dear friends, Shannon Barnes, who is a palliative care social worker at Texas Children's Hospital in Houston, Texas. During our conversation, Shannon explains the ways that she helps support families and patients dealing with having to make decisions around a life-threatening or serious illness. In addition to talking about the importance of helping a caregiver keep their cup full so they can continue to care for their loved one while taking care of themselves, we also talk about the ways that she ensures she's leaving her own feelings and emotions at the door, both when helping a patient or returning home. One of the coping mechanisms that Shannon described was creating playlists to help honor and acknowledge a patient who had passed. The tactic especially resonated with me because I similarly use music as a means of processing through difficult life events and emotions. Shannon mentioned that this ritual was born from her time working with individuals dealing with mental health and substance misuse issues in addition to homelessness. After our interview, I asked if she'd mind sharing what song it was that she had referenced during our conversation that she used to memorialize her first patient. The song, Bob Seger's Against the Wind, seemed like a fitting tribute and perfect episode title, despite potential rumblings from my producer, who still is not thrilled with my last episode's Billy Joel nod, which I continue to stand by. But waking up this morning to the news that an old friend lost his battle with substance misuse, the song and the timing of this conversation is especially meaningful to me. For all those out there feeling the ache of loss or battling with your own grief, I hope you're able to find some comfort. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Shannon. Welcome, Shannon. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being on the show. And I'm especially excited because you are one of my dearest friends. We go way back. I met you when I was living in Houston, and you are the reason why we're even having this season of the podcast. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Tell me a little bit about what it's like to be a palliative care social worker. What, what exactly do you do? A little bit of everything, really. I guess my main job is to support people that are um, dealing with really significant changes in their lives because of a life-threatening or serious diagnoses of a loved one. I do a psychosocial, I learn all about them, and then I try to incorporate what's important to them in their everyday stay there and help with coping. It's really individualized and it's care for every family. And I work really closely with like a whole team. Like I'll be with a doctor and a chaplain and then it'll be myself. I guess what I do is psychosocial support. And sometimes we are with families where things aren't going so great, where treatments aren't working so well, when they need help making decisions. That's why our team exists, I think, in, in part, is to sort of provide that support to help somebody to be able to make really hard decisions, things that you would never you know, you would never dream that you would have to make for somebody. I think that that also ties back to that idea that palliative care, it's not just end of life. You know, you're helping earlier on to, to make sure that they're able to kind of go through that process. Yes. Now that you bring that up, that reminds me that sometimes we get called for an end of life discussion, which it's fine. We can do that. But a lot of families think that we're like hospice. Mm. you're not hospice so I have to not just me but we all have to kind of explain while we can refer to hospice we're not hospice we're here to support you that sort of surprises people when we tell them that 
So is palliative care, is that generally brought in when someone is, when they think end of life is going to be a possibility or totally go either way. Okay. Um, there are, I I've heard, um, some programs, not, not at Texas children's because our team is rather, I mean, we have a big team, but it's not big enough to cover the whole spectrum of the hospital. Mm -hmm. Um, but in different places, they will initiate a palliative consult when a child gets like diagnosed with a certain thing like leukemia. Ideally, you would have a palliative team meet with them at that moment and then can work with them through the trajectory of like the illness. Um, that's like an ideal situation, I think, because then you can kind of be a checkpoint and you can say, hey, remember when we talked last month, you were saying like, this is kind of what you wanted your goals to be. Where are you now? Because things can change over time. Puzzle pieces can move, you know. Um, right. feelings about things like you can say one thing one day and then change your mind another day so it could be any time I think earlier the better really to establish right. that relationship is the reason why it's not always introduced that early to your point about bandwidth is it just the way that hospitals are set up I think there's still quite a misunderstanding about what we do and when is appropriate time to consult us some kids can be like medically complex, but they don't necessarily need to see palliative care team. But then for some families, it's appropriate. I mean, I guess our team would probably say any of those kids would be appropriate, you know, or right. at any time when you have a really like serious or chronic or life-threatening diagnosis, it would be appropriate to see us. It's just the misconception, I think, about when to consult us and then also like what we do. I think a lot of teams think, well, I'm, I need to t talk to palliative care because we're going to have this like potential end of life discussion or decision that needs to be made. And um, then there's other teams that, um, you know, they're just not sure. So I think that's part of the thing. So it sounds like the misconceptions aren't just with families. It's also within the medical care teams that you're working with. Yes. And I will say that we're working really hard to sort of enlighten people. <laughs> sure. I like to think of us as sort of like a connecting piece um, mm -hmm. because we follow the families wherever they are in the hospital or even outpatient. Like when they discharge, we can check in with them outpatient visits. And so it's sort of almost a comforting thing to have like the same team sort of know what you've been through and then be a checkpoint like on each of those roads. And sometimes we can kind of help clarify any sort of like, you know, communication issues and things like that. Because if you've bounced around in the hospital for a long time, a lot gets lost. It's a totally different situation. But even with my mom, you know, trying to explain to somebody what her baseline is, you know, what a nurse might think a baseline should be for her, but it's totally different. And I can imagine that it's probably a relief for parents or even children to not have to explain over and over and over again the same thing. So the way it's set up is that a team, a different team, I mean, it's the same treating team, but it's a team that rotates like on a weekly basis. Okay. In, in the ICU, at least. So the families are like, I feel like I'm having to re-educate a whole group of people or a new team. You might have the same nurse, which is very comforting for the families, but you'll have a different, like, attending doctor um, who's sort of managing everything. And Got so it. 
that can be sort of kind of overwhelming and frustrating for families. If you've been there, I mean, any length of time, you're kind of feeling like, ah, I kind of keep having to like re-explain myself. I've heard families say, well, did you read the chart? Yeah, it can be something where if you have a chart that this is this thick because you have months and months of history in the hospital or with your disease state, it can be tough just walking into that. But then at the same time as a family, you're like, I've been telling everyone this over and over. So yeah, I can, I can totally get that. That's a challenge. Like you get burnt out explaining over and over again. Okay. This is, this is where she sat. You know, this is like the, the medication does this to my child. Um, just different that my child doesn't like to be positioned this way. Just saying that every day, all the time. Yeah. And then a lot of my families feel like I have to re-explain myself so much that I can't step away. Um, or they feel like they do. I guess with our team, we're hoping we can take a little bit of that burden off and say, Hey, we know the whole trajectory. We know what happened from here to here. We can talk to this team. And that really brings them a lot of relief. And so some of the activities that you do, what does that look like when you are interacting with them? Sometimes what I can do with families, um, especially a caregiver that's at the bedside a lot, we'll come up with like a self-care plan. I'll check in with them to see where they're at with it. I'll say, okay, you haven't stepped aside. What have you done for yourself? Usually like families will say nothing or they'll say, well, I had a coffee today. And sort of I'll just expand on that and say, okay, Every day you have your coffee in the morning and then we just sort of branch out from there and then I'll check in. And sometimes it's just as simple as, did you have your coffee today? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like small, but it can be kind yeah. of thing. That's five minutes that they're not spending focused on their loved one or making sure that they're okay or just taking that time to think mm-hmm. about themselves a little bit. It's kind of like a cliche, but you got to fill your cup. Sure. So that you can give back. And people tend to really understand that. We do aromatherapy. Uh, Claire and I. Oh, <laughs> Claire's cool. the other social worker on the team. Um, so sometimes aromatherapy can help with, you know, feeling relaxed or feeling calm or feeling less nauseous or, you know, things like that. But it can help with the caregiver, too. Some other things I've done. I had a kiddo that uh, was feeling very anxious. Mm-hmm. And was um, pushing their um, their medication button a lot. And come to find out, they really responded well to, um, to meditation. So mm-hmm. we found some meditation apps um, that were free. And then she's this, like, person that needs to touch something. So instead of the button, I brought her, like, this little sort of meditation bracelet um, that our leadership so kindly got for us. But... It's just like a little beaded bracelet, and I just kind of guided her through how she could touch the bracelet and think of like a, like a mantra or just like a little prayer or a saying for each one. And I said, do you think you know what you might say? She's like, yeah. And so cool. she started to do that. I mean, it could literally run the gamut of aromatherapy to self-care plans to sometimes it's just talking and just visiting letting people get whatever's on their mind off of their mind and it, you know, to lift a weight. And do you find that you are focused more on the child or the family or is it a mix of both? It's a mixture. Sometimes the caregiver really gets overlooked in terms of what they need. And I think that the best person that can support 
our patients is their caregiver. So I really like to try and focus a lot of attention on the caregiver if I can, just because I know that that person's in there all the time. Yeah. Sometimes it's more giving of me to focus on the patient, to give the caregiver a little bit of a reprieve. Um, and if that, it, it, it depends on a lot of things, but if the patient is alert and aware and can, you know, wants to engage, then that's, that's something that I try to do as well. But I, I tend to focus more on the caregiver to sort of fill their cup so that they can fill the cup of the patient. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Again, I know just from personal experience and just from the groups of people that I've talked to, that's such a huge issue because you're always on. Yeah. And even though it's so exhausting for the person who is sick to go through everything, you're the one who has to be aware. You have to keep the pieces together. There's a lot of obligation that comes with that and responsibility. And it can be really difficult to let that go because you think that by letting go in any way, you might be failing this person. Yes. Yes. That kind of goes back to the whole repeating and, you know, making sure and it's this loss of control. Is there resistance from caregivers when you, when you initially have the conversation or are they happy to have someone to connect with? Again, it varies, you know, it just varies. It depends on where that person's at. Um, it may take a long time before that person really feels safe to kind of open up and share what they're going through. Um, I mean, I've had situations where I've tried and tried and tried, and I feel like sometimes that caregiver has to wear a mask just so that they can get through their day and just so that they can um, make it through that moment. Um, and they're not they're sometimes they're, they're physically there, but mentally they're just, they can't even touch like where, where they're at right now. So they do wear this mask and it's, it is hard for them. But even if I don't go through a whole session with someone, even if I can't put in a self-care plan, I at least know that that person sees me coming in and making an effort and, I can at least get them to say, you know, thanks for for stopping by. You're recognizing the moment and you're allowing them to see that you're acknowledging them and you're seeing them. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's not something that they're going to have an immediate response or reaction to, but you're building a trust. Yes. Yes. And then I have some people that are just immediately like, oh, I'm so grateful to have somebody here. And, you know, those are the people that really need a... They could, and never ending support. Like they could use everybody from the team. So we'll send in everybody. (laughs) (laughs) And that's actually something that's come up with, um, with doula training of, you know, it's not about you having the experience to feel fulfilled or to feel like you've made a difference. Yes. Meeting them where they're at and letting them be there and not bringing anything else into the room with you. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's got to yeah. be so challenging for, I mean, I can't imagine, I mean, doing that day in and day out, how have you done it? <laughs> What's your <laughs> secret? Tell me your magic. Uh, ooh, a lot of little things. Um, I recognize that that is not my journey. That's their journey and I don't own it. And I have gotten to a point where I feel almost selfish if I feel any kind of like real, ownership in that whole situation other than what my role is and what I'm supposed to be doing, which is 
providing support if I can, if they want it, if they're ready for that. But it's just not mine to hold on to. So that's something that I've I've done, like I've thought about every time I go in. And then the other piece is that um, I have a pretty long commute home. So I usually like decompress with music and things like that. And then I don't want to bring anything back home because I've got those two little kiddos. When I touch the doorknob that is behind me or my work is behind me and I'm stepping into a new space. That's kind of how I do it. And I will say like, it's definitely not work for everybody. And I don't think that you just, you know, start off in life going, oh, I'm gonna be a palliative care social worker. I mean, I, I certainly didn't, but I have found that um, I like being with people in a really difficult time. And that's where I feel the most useful. It's nice to feel that whole satisfying thing, but simply being there for somebody during a hard time, I think is enough. How did you end up in palliative care then? You know, what, what was your journey to get there? It's a pretty rocky, weird journey. Um, <laughs> I hear you on that. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I guess it must have started. I uh, took a job working with homeless folks that have uh, HIV and uh, had mental health and uh, substance abuse issues. So I worked with them, um, I, I believe it was about two and a half years I did that. And I had a couple of patients that were very, very sick, and I've had a few that died. I wound up meeting the palliative care team at that hospital, and I was like, oh, wow, how awesome. There's like a whole team that's like devoted to like pain and, and you know, support. And I was like, oh, cool. I just felt like a real connection with that team. And, and I just felt really good about that. And then sort of fast forward to, I got a job at Texas Children's in the, the PICU, which is the pediatric intensive care unit. I worked with the palliative care team a lot. And we have a lot of those really difficult moments and discussions and things. And um, they were there. And I got to know them. And, um, and I just thought, they're so wonderful. And it just so happened that they had an opening and I had an opportunity and I just went for it and I got it. I'm being biased here, but I, you know, knowing you as long as I have and knowing the kindness in your heart, I can appreciate that, you know, there's a lot of people who are benefiting from your unique and sassy and uh, straightforward ways, Miss Barnes. <laughs> <laughs> You know me so well. <laughs> but yeah, so tell me about your music playlist because, you know, you know that that's something that's close to my heart too. So I'm kind of excited to hear how you're using it in practice. When I was working with my uh, patients like that were homeless and had HIV and that uh, I had a few patients die, knowing that they weren't going to have like a funeral, knowing that there's not going to be really a memorial for them. They were alone when they were out there and they were alone hopefully not all alone um, in hospice or, you know, wherever they passed. But I just felt like I needed to do something to resolve that relationship because it would happen so suddenly sometimes that they would die. Mm -hmm. And then I needed a way to sort of let go and to remember them. And so I had had a very difficult loss, a patient I didn't anticipate dying 
And I just said, I need to send him off. And I was on my way home. I heard this song on the radio and it came on and I was like, this is the perfect song for him, you know? And, uh, and I just like, I felt myself like I allowed myself to cry and just to feel, and I sang along with the music and I felt so much better. And I just felt like he was in the car with me. How cool. Like we were saying goodbye. So ever since then, I started just sort of adding like to my playlist. Whenever somebody dies, I'll send them on with a song. That's my thing. Is that something that you pick in the moment? Is it ever something that you've had a conversation with a person about? Or is this something that you just keep to yourself? Um, I mean, it is a little personal, but um, it can be like all of those things. Like sometimes people will tell me, uh, like a favorite musician or a song. But then there's those types that don't really talk about, you know, music and all that. And so I'll just pick something that reminds me of that person. And it could just be really like anything. It's really random. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, that's kind of the beauty of it. You know, it's the beauty of when a song finds you or, or, you know, when you find the song and Mm -hmm. making that connection and and figuring out who knows what it is about the melody or the the words or the voice that seems to just pair so perfectly with whatever that situation is. But those moments are just brilliant. Yeah, there's been a lot of them where I just, I felt so much peace and music gives you something that, you know, it's just sort of unspoken. Yeah. You know, you don't have to talk, you just listen. Do you have everything on one playlist? It's on one. Okay. Yes. It's something I, I'll listen to now and again, and I'm like, oh, wow, there's a lot on there. But it spans back years. So, I mean, it's, it's really, like you said, it's really interesting, the tapestry that has come together. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I make playlists every month. Things I hear on the radio, things that are relating to a situation that's happening. And, you know, a little bit of my kind of project where then I'll take the songs from each month and then I'll create a year in review kind of a look and it's always such a weird and cool and strange snapshot to see what comes together at the end of that (laughs) yeah it's almost like a diary Mm -hmm, totally you don't have the energy to write all your feelings out but it just encapsulates everything that you're feeling so perfectly in that moment and then to go back and revisit it musically is I found like sometimes I'm like this is a little overwhelming. I'm going to have to like pause it right there because this is bringing back a lot of memories. You know, you just don't realize like how much people touch your life. If, if you memorialize somebody in music, it, it's just like this whole other level of feeling. You will appreciate this being a Muppets fan, but when my grandfather died, I printed out the lyrics to I'm going to go back there someday. and I put it in his coffin I mean that was really my first death I was 19 I could not figure out how to process it properly myself so I had to turn to music exactly yes a year reminded me when my great-grandmother died I did make a playlist I completely forgot that's how I dealt with it that was my therapy yeah okay I guess I I just must have taken that and like used it later on (laughs) that's something that I've been appreciating as I've gotten older and you know you think that you're like evolving into the new you which I mean we are right this whole thing is a journey and an evolution but when you realize how much of that is rooted in these pieces of you that have always existed but it's kind of like what you said earlier the puzzle pieces shift 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so it's like you're taking those little bits of yourself and reforming it into this next thing yes. and taking those coping things and figuring out how to make it work in a way that helps you help other people. <laughs> Drop the mic. This interview's done. <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Awesome. Once again, I want to thank Shannon for taking the time to talk to me about the work she does as a palliative care social worker and for sharing the ways that she copes through the emotions that her work manifests. If you'd like to connect with Shannon, you can reach out to her via email at stbarnes at texaschildrens.org. And we'll have a link to her email in our blog at www.buryme.nj.com. Tune in next week when we'll be talking to Claire Crawford, who also works as a palliative care social worker at Texas Children's Hospital. During our conversation, we talk about how her own experiences in hospitals as a child drove her interest in the medical field and how that evolved into a career with palliative care. Bury Me in New Jersey is recorded in Hamilton, New Jersey, and is produced by Nick Rumisick. Our theme music is P to the A by Anonymous Novels. Check out their page on SoundCloud to hear more of their work. Thanks again for listening to our show today. If you like what you hear, Subscribe to Bury Me in New Jersey on your favorite podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. If you're interested in learning more about ways you can support our show, please visit www.buryme.nj.com. Also, if you have any ideas for the show or topics you'd like to hear covered, we'd love to hear them. Reach out at sarah at buryme.nj.com. Thanks.